The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If you'll take your Bibles tonight and open them to uh, Paul's epistle to the Colossians, we're looking at the first chapter. And we continue our study of the doctrine of the church tonight, and I'm speaking specifically about the ministry of the church. Uh, Paul, who is the author of this letter, was the foremost apologist for the doctrine of the church. Uh, I think most of you are familiar with the ministry of Paul. We look in the book of Acts, and there we find the, the history of the church in the first century. The apostle Paul sort of takes over the entire narrative after about 11 chapters, and he becomes the most prominent figure in the book of Acts. And that book is all about uh, Paul starting churches throughout the Roman Empire and talks about how that he made his travels to these many different places. And then when we come to these later books of the New Testament, such as this epistle to the Colossians, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote most of these letters to the churches, and they were written as encouragement to them. They were written to further develop the doctrines of Christianity. Uh, The plan and the program of Christ for this world in this age is the church. And so the Christian church, the Christian faith rather, is centered in the church. And the Apostle Paul was the foremost apologist for the Christian faith. Now, as we look at uh, these letters that he wrote, we also understand that Paul is also the one who is chief in the defense of the church. He's the chief apologist for the Christian faith and also chief in the defense of the church. And here in Colossians chapter 1, we have a synopsis of what I think is probably the the very best passage that we have on the ministry of the church, a comprehensive look at the ministry of the church. And we read this last week, starting at verse number 9 in the first chapter and reading down to verse 29 at the end of the chapter. So I'm not going to go through that whole section again, but I would like to call your attention to verses 20 through 23. So if you look in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 20, the Apostle Paul writes, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister." Now, this particular part of the Scripture follows immediately upon these grand statements that Paul makes in verses 15 through 19. And in those verses, as we read last week, Paul shows us the preeminence of Christ. And in the message last week, we started by talking about the main work of the church. And it's taken from those verses that uh, 15 through 19. And, and out of those verses, all the other works of the church flow. Now, number one in our list of the ministry of the church is that the church is responsible for the exaltation of Christ. That is our main work. This is the focus of everything that we do. Now, the chief end of man 
It's to glorify Jesus Christ as we set him forth as the head of the church and as the Lord to whom we owe all of our allegiance. And so every ministry that we have has as its goal to lift up Christ. And so the preeminence of Christ is what Paul sets forth in that passage in verses like 16 through 18. And if you want to look at that, this again, he says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now you notice there at the end of the 16th verse, it says all things were created by him, and this in particular, and for him. Now that tells us that we are here because of Christ. We are created for Christ. You exist for Christ, and there is no other purpose or reason for your existence than to exalt Christ. And that shows us then that the chief end of man is not man. And with so many man-centered ministries that there are today, this is a very important point for us to look at. Now, you may remember a statement that I've made on a few occasions, and it's been some time since we talked about this. Uh, Most notably, we were dealing with this issue in Uh, the book of Ephesians, a few years ago. But I quoted a statement that was made by Robert Schuller, and he said that classic theology has erred by being Christ-centered rather than man-centered. Now, folks, that tells you that his theology is not the theology of the Bible because what Christ intended to do, salvation is intended to leave man in the dust from which he was created, and to lift up Christ, the great Savior who delivers us from the dust of our corruption. And if we don't get that central point clear about who we are and who Christ is, then we'll never exalt Christ as we should. The church exists to exalt Christ. It's our purpose to lift up the truth of Jesus Christ, and God has charged us with the responsibility of truth. Now, remember last week we looked at this, how the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church is the station that upholds truth, and we are, as Jude says, to earnestly contend for the faith that was given to us through Christ, the apostles, and also through the prophets. And then it's also important for us to understand, as the apostle John teaches in 1 John, that any view of Christ that falls short of everything that the Bible says about him is an untruth. And a deficient view of Christ is never God-honoring. It's never Christ-exalting. So we have to get that into our minds first, that the ministry of the church and the the ministry of Berean Baptist Church, and, and we're talking about us, just not what we're reading about here in the Bible, but the ministry of our church is Christ and nothing but Christ. And so it's his name that's to be lifted up. He's to be magnified and nothing else. And so Paul begins the chapter by speaking of the ministry of the church, which is the ministry of exaltation. Now, secondly, in this passage, we also see that the church's ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. Now, that follows very closely upon what I've said that a deficient view of Christ would leave us short of the ability to be reconciled to Christ. And so you have these 
false gospels that are taught by men like Robert Schuller. And what that does is to leave men and women, boys and girls, still dead in trespasses and sins. And to set up a Christ like that in a person's mind is, is nothing but idolatry. Now, although people today, most people today, don't make idols like the Greeks and the Romans did, still people are very much guilty of gross forms of idolatry. And that is they have a personal God. They have a God that's in their mind. And that's just as much idolatry as if they fashioned an idol out of gold and put a statue in their house and began to bow down to that, put that in their living rooms. See, there are many people that think that they're Christians, but they don't really have any idea about the God of the Bible. And I've, had, I've talked to a lot of people that they present to me their personal Jesus. And their personal Jesus is not the one that we read about in Scripture. He's one that never condemns anyone for their sin. He's a Jesus that's tolerant of everybody, no matter what they might choose to do. And so we just have to ask, where do people get such an idea about Jesus? I mean, they can't get it from the Bible. And so they think that their Jesus is okay, and they don't want to meet sin head on. They don't understand that they're sinners under the wrath of God. And so they invent a Jesus in their own mind that's okay with everything that they do just as long as they do something nice every now and then. Well, these are people that don't really know the one true living God. Their God is a dead God. Might as well be worshiping Baal or Molech out of the Old Testament or something else. So what God has done then, because we have all of these people that really don't understand who God is and the real God of the Bible is, he has tasked his true church with upholding the truth. We said that a moment ago. But he's also given us this ministry of reconciliation. Now, that's actually a direct statement from Paul that he made in 2 Corinthians 5.18. There he said, God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, now lest you're confused about what that ministry is, it's the efforts that are made through the gospel to repair the breach between man and God. The, The very thing that happened when man fell in the Garden of Eden. Now, the Bible teaches that man must be reconciled to God because our sins have separated us from him. Now, one thing we need to note, though, is the Bible never says, never in any place does the Bible say that God must be reconciled to man. And I suppose that's part of what Schuller missed in his assessment of right theology, that God does not need to be reconciled to man, that it's man who is the transgressor. And according to the Scriptures, the Bible says that we are at enmity with God. Now, enmity is a word that means hostility. We are hostile against God. Enmity also means hatred. The natural man hates God. But you wouldn't think that, would you? I mean, not when you meet most people. Uh, You'll hardly ever meet anybody that would just come out and say to you, you know something, I hate God. I just don't want to have anything to do with God at all. I hate Him completely. Most people don't even understand that they're actually hostile towards God. They think that they're in love with God. But the Bible teaches us that anybody without Jesus Christ is not Christ is not in love with God. They're actually hostile to God, and that's proved by the universal problem of sin. And so Scripture says that there is none that seeks God. So we're not going to find anybody that's doing their absolute best to try to be reconciled to God because they don't even understand there's actually any hostility. So what that does 
it necessitates a proactive stance from God to do something about this enmity or this hostility, the hatred that man has towards him. And the first step that's taken in reconciliation is not a step that you and I take, not a step of man, but the first step of reconciliation was taken by God. Now, there's nothing, nothing that really shows us the mercy and the grace of God in any greater degree than the willingness of God to do the utmost to bring man back to him. I mean, the Bible says that even when we were in sin, that God, uh, God demonstrated his love towards us in sending Christ to die for us. So when God created man and man fell, uh, just prior to that, of course, we know the Bible says that God created the world and then God rested from the creation. But when Adam sinned, God went to work immediately once again, setting in motion a means by which man could be brought back to him. Now, what Adam did when he sinned was to destroy the relationship between God and man. Uh, Adam's ability to commune with God rested on the basis of his perfect obedience. But when he disobeyed, that severed the relationship that he had with God. And so being separated from God and from God's sustaining influence, there was a breach that was caused that man did not have the ability to be recovered from. And from Adam's one sin, we see what's happened to the world, that the world has spiraled down into a multitude of sins. And one of the things that the Scripture says about the heart of man is that it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And we see that being played out in the first few generations of the world's history when it wasn't long before man had become so sinful, his heart had become so wicked that God said that he had to destroy man from the face of the earth. And, of course, that's what happened with the flood. And the only person that was saved or people that were saved was Noah and his family, and they had been right, made righteous because of faith in God. Well, a wonderful thing about that story is to understand what pictures that it tries to show us. And one of those pictures is that the ark that saved Noah was an example or a, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the ark of safety for believers. That it's Christ who bears us up on a sea of destruction And all those that are in Christ have been reconciled to God. And so those that are in him have been lifted up from this evil morass of sin that surrounds us and what keeps us away from God. And this is what Paul says about the Colossian uh, believers. He said that they had been reconciled to God or they were one that were in this ark of safety that it's Jesus Christ. And so it becomes our ministry according to this passage that Christ's church is to hold up this ministry of reconciliation. And, and we see here in verse number 20 how that reconciliation is accomplished. Paul writes, And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Now there in that passage you see the word peace. Without Christ we are not at peace with God. We're under God's wrath but we're made at peace with God, which is really the same thing as reconciliation. We're made at peace with God by the blood of the cross. Christ's blood is actually what propitiates uh, God's wrath for our sins. Now, propitiation is a very important word in Scripture. It's a word that means the same as satisfaction, that Christ satisfied God 
for the punishment of our sins. He actually took the wrath of God upon himself in order to satisfy God for our sins. Now, the Bible also shows us that this propitiation is God's activity and not man's activity. In 1 John 4.10, John said, Here in his love, and, and by the way, notice that this puts God's love first, that God is the one who makes that first step, as I said a moment ago. He said, Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God's work started immediately upon the sin of Adam in the garden. And God had to start first because as sinners, we can't come from the, from the place of offense that we're in. We, we can't come and do anything about what, what's happened to us in this, in this breach that we have with God because of sin. And so God has to take that first step. And what he did was to implement a plan of redemption that the Bible shows us stretches all the way back before God actually created the world, that God had this plan in mind, and he put that into play as soon as man uh, sinned against him. Well, how is it that we know that we need to be reconciled to God? Well, we have to first realize that it is God that created us, and that God is our supreme authority. And the Bible teaches that we can know God through creation. Now, this is the reason that you don't really find a whole lot of atheists. I mean, there are some. We talked about this a little bit, I think, last Wednesday night, that people will have to be educated to become atheists. And really, they have to be educated, be educated beyond their intelligence to become an atheist because the Bible says that the, the heavens declare the glory of God. So we know God through creation. So we have this innate sense that there is a creator, and then the Bible also says that, that God has written his law upon man's heart. And, and that's why no matter where you go, universally, people know that it's wrong to lie. They know it's wrong to cheat. They know it's wrong to steal, to commit adultery. They know it's wrong to kill each other. And that comes from the law that's been written on man's heart. So nature, in that sense, well, we can see that God created. And what God put on our heart, in that sense, we can know God. But nature doesn't reveal to us all that there is to know about God because it doesn't show us how we can peacefully coexist with him. And since God has written the moral code on our heart, we know that when we sin that there's a problem between us and God and we've upset the relationship that we have with the Creator. People know that. But because they don't know the true God, what they do is they seek a reconciliation with a God that they've made in their own minds. If they don't know the true God, then they'll just invent a God that they'll try to appease. And so that's why you see in the Old Testament and you see throughout history that people would try different methods in order to appease their gods, to make some kind of propitiation. So in the Old Testament, they sometimes would make human sacrifices or sacrifices of other things. They fashioned gods of their own hands. And of course, that's exceedingly foolish. Paul talked about that in his sermon on Mars Hill when he was in Athens. He told the people there that God can't be worshipped in temples and doesn't dwell in temples that are made with hands and that God can't be, graven by, uh, uh, can't be a graven image by the device of human art. That's not God. But still they made their idols and they worshipped those because their hearts were darkened by sin. And a darkened heart will never be able to produce light. 
So it's apparent then that nature itself can't reveal to us how that we can be reconciled to God. That essential information that we need is not found in nature. And, And that's why you have all these people that worship these false gods and make their idols. So how then is the true knowledge of God disseminated? How do we get that knowledge to people? Well, that's actually what Paul is saying to the church at Colossae. That here is this church that's in the middle of the Roman culture and the Greek culture. And all these people that are around them, they're worshiping these idols and they were everywhere. I mean, those cities were no different than what he found in Athens in Acts chapter 17. And so these idols were everywhere. And in the midst of all of that, these people worshiping idols, he tells the church at Colossae, you have been given a ministry of reconciliation. That it's your responsibility to show these people how they can be actually reconciled to God because they don't know. And so God has given us that, that that we give this word of Christ to people so they can be reconciled with God. And we're to tell them the only way that peace can be made with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the same thing is true now as it was then. Uh, The human condition hasn't changed over all of these thousand years Ephesians says that our spiritual condition is so bad that we're dead. We're corpses with no power in the spiritual world. And that is exactly why God has to take the initiative. That's why we would take issue with anyone that teaches that dead men can believe in Christ. I mean, spiritually dead people can believe. They can't believe until God comes and actually touches them and opens up their eyes and brings them to life so they can understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that part of it, that that bringing a person to life, is a monergistic work of God himself, of a sovereign God. God does all of that. That's his part in our salvation. The scripture says, and you hath he quickened, or you hath he made alive, that were dead in trespasses and sin. Well, the work of reconciliation naturally flows into the third ministry that God has given the church, and that is the ministry of salvation. So we have a ministry of exaltation and one of reconciliation, and then we have this third ministry, which is a ministry of salvation. Now, that's the commission that God has given the church, and the ministry of reconciliation in action is the ministry of salvation. It's brought about by the great commission that Christ gave to us. And and as we preach the gospel of Christ, that's the ministry of reconciliation in action. And it flows into and blossoms into the ministry of salvation. Now, it's it's paramount that the gospel that we preach must be the right gospel. Now, just because a group of people sets up a building builds a building somewhere and puts a sign over it, and they say, church on the door, doesn't really make them a church. A church must preach the right gospel of Christ. And there are so many that claim that they are preaching the gospel of Christ when they really don't know Christ at all. Now, in Galatians, Paul described that this is a real problem. He said, there's another gospel out there, and that's a gospel that we need to be aware of and to watch out for. He says in Galatians chapter 1, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. 
Now, we looked at that extensively in our study of Galatians 1 through 3, and we learned that all perversions of the gospel boil down to one key perversion. The key perversion of the gospel, that, that's, that, that it's all the time, outside of the true gospel of Christ, this is the key perversion, and that is salvation comes to us by human effort rather than by the grace of God. And so a gospel that has any hint of human effort in it as the means of salvation is a perverted gospel. It's one that will not save. Now, in our outreach training on Wednesday evening, I, I, think, it's, uh, I think it's very interesting in this area because you watch those videos, and in almost every street interview before the right gospel is presented, you'll see the false gospel raise its ugly head. Now, the instructors will ask questions to people, They'll say to them, well, are you, do you think that you're a good person? And they go through that and they say, do you think you're going to heaven or you're going to hell? And the answer that people almost always give, I mean, the first answer they almost always give is, I think that I'm going to go to heaven. And so they ask, why do you think that you're going to heaven? And the answer to the question, because I'm a good person. I mean, that's almost the universal answer. I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. But Scripture says that there's none of us that gets to heaven because we're good, because it says none of us are good. And that's when the instructors point out the law of God that leads people to recognize their sinfulness. We're not going to heaven because we're good. There's none good but God. And Christ is our righteousness. That's the way that we get to heaven, not by anything that we've done. Now, I have to hesitate a little bit, and and I, I... a little bit before I tell you this, that there's one fault that I have with the videos. And if if there is one fault, it would be this. It's the lack of pointing people to a place where they can actually get more help. Now, I have in my mind a a different way that I would have started the whole series to get it working. I think it's all very good, but I would have started in a little bit different way. But one of the things that I would have included in this is some instruction about baptism. And baptism can only be obtained through a New Testament church. And I know that there are many people that think that when you're giving gospel presentations that you should never broach the the subject of baptism. But if you get to the place where a person will admit that they're a sinner and they turn to Christ in faith and they say that they believe in Christ, well, of course, that's all that a person needs to be saved is your faith. The Bible makes that very clear. But the next thing that the Bible tells us to do is that we are to be obedient to the Lord in baptism. And, And that was taught in the New Testament. This is always the methodology of the New Testament. And so every time that you see repentance and faith in the New Testament, you always find that followed up with baptism. Now, again, we all understand baptism is not a part of salvation. Baptism is a part of our obedience to the Lord. So when, when people were taught about being saved, baptism and being obedient to the Lord was taught to them as well. On Pentecost, people were told about it. And on that day, we read that 3,000 people were saved and added to the church. They were baptized after they professed faith in Christ. We, we know that Philip immediately baptized the Ethiopian eunuch after he made a profession of faith. And evidently, Philip had told him about it because the eunuch was the one that suggested that they do it. I mean, just as soon as they passed a, a body of water that was sufficient enough that they could both go down into the water to be baptized biblically by immersion then uh, the eunuch said, why why can't we do this? And and you remember Philip said to him, well, if you believe with all of your heart, you may. Well, Philip had explained to him about baptism. And then 
you think about other places in the Scripture. Uh, as soon as the Philippian jailer had been saved, that, that Paul uh, baptized him and his family that were also believers. So you look, though, at, at, at how the great soul winners look at this today, and they, they tell you that if you talk about things like that, that you'll confuse converts when you talk about baptism. Well, if you explain salvation right, I don't think that you will. Uh, nobody who truly believes would be confused into thinking that baptism has anything to do with saving them. But I suppose that the videos leave that out because there's confusion there even over where every believer should be before he starts the ministry of giving the gospel to other people. Now, this is the point that I said that I I think I would change things around a little bit, that we've learned in this series and talking about the church that the only ones who have the real authority to preach the gospel of Christ are those who have been commissioned by Christ to do it. And that's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So where I would have started out is that I would have talked about the church itself and I would have talked about the responsibility, folks, of Christians in the church to give the gospel of Christ that we are the ones that are supposed to do it. That's part of the work of Christ, the uh, the church, the ministry of salvation. So I'd want to point that out. And people are confused because they think that the individual is the church, but the individual is not the church. And, and we looked at that uh, a couple of weeks ago, that the interpretation of the word church out of the New Testament precludes an inv- individual, uh, individualistic interpretation of the word. So if I had a complaint about it, it would be that. But maybe that's not even fair because uh, they do produce a lot of other, of other materials. They don't mention much about this particular aspect of it in these videos, but they produce a lot of other materials where they do talk about the church and they do get into the issue of baptism. So I just want to make you aware of that as well. Now, let me point out to you as we close tonight uh, three important aspects of the gospel as it relates to the responsibility of the church. Now, first, we need to recognize that in the ministry of salvation that the gospel is for the world. The gospel is universal in scope. Now, the universality of it is seen in passages like Romans 1.16 and 1 John 2.2. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 John 2.2, John says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, in both of those places, the writer points out that the gospel was not confined to one race of people. And as you know, that was a huge problem for those apostles, the first Jewish converts. They thought the gospel should only be preached to Jews. And they had to get that out of their minds. But God uh, sent Christ not to save one race of people, but to save all kinds of people. So this is why we have Caucasians in our, in our church. We have Hispanics. We have Koreans and Filipinos and blacks and so forth. And that's because God saves all different kinds of people. Now, the proof of that is a scene that we see in heaven, something that happens, uh, a scene from the future. This is in Revelation 5:9, where the redeemed of God are delineated. There it says, and they sung a new song, and this is a scene in heaven, and they sung a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Now, of course, that's referring to Christ. It was because of his blood 
that people are redeemed from every kindred and tongue and people and nation. So we don't limit ourselves to one type of person that God can save and God will save anyone that repents of their sins and places their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. And this is why that Jesus told the disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now there, uh, that, that was right after Jesus had risen from the dead, right as he was getting ready to ascend into heaven, he made that statement. And that should have been their first clue, if they ever wondered about it, that Gentiles would be saved. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Later we find the Apostle Paul understood that very well because as he was preaching on Mars Hill that I mentioned a moment ago, he said, and the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now, let me talk to you for just a second here about repentance. I'm not going to give you anything deeper, go into that a great deal, but repentance is without doubt the most missed part of gospel presentations. The first call for a sinner is to repentance. And yet it's extremely difficult for us to find a gospel track today from most ministries that even mention repentance. Now, what most soul-willing ministries have done is they've departed from the Scriptures on this very vital part of the, uh, of the gospel upon this commandment. Uh, they either change the definition of repentance to make it synonymous with faith, or they say that there is no sin to repent of but the sin of unbelief. And so they don't give the full gospel of Christ because repentance from sin is always up front in the gospel presentations of Scripture. And without repentance, there's no one that enters into the kingdom of heaven. And so we have to have a right gospel, a complete gospel, and that includes repentance from all sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we don't have that, we don't have a real gospel. Now, secondly, in the gospel of salvation, the ministry of salvation, this is a gospel of warning. And if there's a place where I can applaud the videos, this is one of the very best that they never shy away from plainly declaring the destiny of a lost sinner. Now, in our text, Paul says in verses 27 and 28, Colossians chapter 1, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning, warning every man. Now, what do you think that Paul was warning people about? Was he warning them about the wonderful plan that God has for your life? Did they need a warning about that? Was he warning them that, you know something, I need to warn you about this. God loves you. You need to be warned about this. And, and he, can't, he just can't stand to exist without you. Let me warn you about that. Now, since most people won't mention sin or hell... I wonder what they thought that Paul was warning people about. Was he warning them about how wonderful their lives would be after they trusted Christ? Well, of course not. What did Paul warn them about? Well, he warned them about eternal damnation in the fires of hell. And the warning is that they'll lose their souls if they don't repent and turn to Christ. His warning was to let them know that they're on the fast track to a lake of fire that's burning with brimstone where the smoke of torment goes up forever from those that are in that place. That's the warning. 
And what we're taught about the gospel is that the most important part of the good news of the gospel is not that we get to go to heaven. The best part of the gospel is we don't have to go to hell. That's what we're saved from. It's not about how life is so going to be so good here on earth after you get saved. It's not about that. Because by the world's standards, the Christian life doesn't cut it for them anyway. That, that's not what we're warning people about. We warn people that they'll go to hell if they don't trust Christ. The good news of the gospel is that people escape the eternal damnation of hell. And everybody's headed there unless they trust in Christ. So what you can't do is you can't leave hell out of the ministry of salvation. If people don't know that they're on their way to hell... And if they don't understand sin and the consequences of it, then they can never come to Christ. They don't understand what they're saved from. So every person has to be brought face to face with the fact that they are sinners and their sin has purchased for them death and hell. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's eternal spiritual death. That's what sin purchases for us. But then you have the ministries that say, well, we don't want to preach about hell that's too negative. And what they're saying is, we don't actually have a true gospel. Thirdly, it's the gospel of wisdom. Verse 28 in Colossians 1, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Now, the gospel is the enlightenment of the wisdom of God. And this isn't wisdom that comes to us naturally. Paul said that the world by wisdom did not know God. Well, how did they know? How, uh, their world's wisdom, the world's wisdom doesn't let people know about God, so how can they know about God? Well, Paul says it was by the foolishness of preaching. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, we need to understand that scripture. There are some people who say, well, it's foolish to preach. And there are people that would look at me and say, well, that's the dumbest thing anybody would ever do. Stand up there and talk to people like you do. There is no God. There is no hell. There's nothing like that. So it's a stupid thing, a foolish thing to preach. Well, some people might say that. But that's not actually what Paul means here. When he says that... that it wasn't by the wisdom of men, but God saved people through the foolishness of preaching. He doesn't mean the act itself, but he means the thing that is preached. That it pleased God to save us through the thing that is preached. And what is it that is preached that is so foolish? It's Christ. Christ is foolishness to the world. Then the Apostle Paul first wrote this. He was dealing with... Greeks and Romans who thought the most foolish thing in the world they could ever think of is that God could become man and come to this earth and die. Pure foolishness to them. They also thought it was foolishness to speak of the resurrection of, from the dead. I mean, they, they believed that the material body, uh, having a physical resurrection, that, that's, that can't happen because the physical body is sinful and can never be anything but sinful. And so they wouldn't believe that. That was foolishness to them. Then you have the Jews that he preached to. They thought it was foolish as well. He, he told them that the Messiah came to die for their sins. They wouldn't accept that because they didn't have any idea that the Messiah should die, even though the Old Testament did say that, and they still don't recognize it today. But it is that foolish message of what Christ did that God uses to save us. 
This is God's wisdom that confounds the worldly wise. So Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now the church has to be ready to take up the ministry of salvation because we have been commissioned personally by Christ to do this. We can't neglect to do it. That's the work of the church. It's the work of a true church of Christ to give the gospel to people that need it. Now, we're, we're out of time here. It's almost 7 o'clock. And the next point that I wanted to talk to you about expands on this theme, and we don't have time to go into that now. So we'll come back to this in a couple of weeks. Um, we don't have services next Sunday night, but we'll come back in a couple of weeks, and we'll try to finish up this part of, the, of our lessons on the ministry of the church. But for now, we need to remember this, that we exist as a church to exalt Christ. We are to reconcile people to him, and we do that through the preaching of the gospel of salvation. That's the ministry of the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time we've spent in your word tonight. Lord, we do pray that you'd help us to be a church that carries out these ministries that you've given us, a ministry of exaltation, a ministry of reconciliation and one of salvation. I mean, this all points up to Jesus Christ and the wonderful work that he's done in coming to this world to save us from our sins. Help us to be a church that carries out these areas of ministry and do it to the best of our ability. And we know, Lord, that you will be pleased by it and souls will be saved. We thank you for this, Lord. Bless our people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.